Hey, listeners, welcome to the next in our summer favorites rollouts here on Right Minded. This week, we're bringing you two fantasy writers, Kwame Mbalia, author of the Tristan Strong series, and Namina Forna, author of the Deathless series. And Brooke, we've talked on past shows about how some genres are sometimes trivialized or unnecessarily condescended to. Um, so we often uh, get on the defensive about them, especially if you write in that genre. And, and you've talked a lot about this with memoir and we recently talked with uh, about this topic with romance writer angelina lopez who resolved at one point in her career to never apologize for writing romance because of all the important meaning that it, that it can and does hold and i feel the same way about fantasy it's one of the most popular genres among readers in the world and it continues to get more and more popular yet i think we under appreciate it sometimes because it's fanciful and escapist and here's what i have to say about escape we need escape we need to literally escape into other worlds to find solace, to find hope, to find an outlet for our anger and pain, and then be able to come back into the problems of the real world stronger and more refreshed. And I just want to note that I loved what Charlie Jane Anders said on a past episode about writing fantasy. You have the power to shape worlds and the monsters are scared of you. I also adore that. And it's so important to remember, uh, you know, into your first point about our human need for escape to just go to other worlds, you know, to get out of here for a while, because it is torturous lately <laughs> for a lot of us. Uh, you know, so this is a fun episode for the Kwame episode in particular is a fun one for me to revisit because James got really into the Tristan Strong series this year as a fifth grader. Uh, you know, so he read the books and listened to the audiobooks, which is something that I love to do too when I really love a particular book and Tristan is a young kid who faces a lot of adversity and he gets into boxing and then he punches a hole into a portal that expands into all kinds of mythological fun stuff for kids to read and he's a very loyal kid and there's a lot about family ties and loyalties in this book that I think make it important reading for elementary school and middle school readers so I'm happy we're revisiting this one. Absolutely. I love when our podcast crosses over into our personal or family life, Brooke. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps we can have a special episode just featuring our kids, <laughs> either in discussion with us or with each other. And I personally want to interview James about the Tristan series. It'd be great if we could bring Kwame Ambalia on for that as well. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to get James' take on Namina Forna's The Gilded Ones, you know, the first in her series, which we talked to her about on the, the episode. And talking back to Charlie Jane Anders, Namina took her inspiration for the book from her anger. I think we often don't think of anger when we think of inspiration. So I want to read a quote from uh, Namina. She said, there were certain parts of the book that were deeply difficult to write because this book is about female trauma. There were certain points where these girls are so traumatized and I felt like I was writing my rage out or my fear out and it was a deeply uncomfortable process. I do recall when I was writing it, I was always kind of on edge because it's painful to write certain things. And I, I think that's really interesting because The Gilded Ones is also, you know, it's a high fantasy novel, but it also deals with issues that we, you know, unfortunately know all too well, like racism and xenophobia and misogyny and inequality and abuse and trauma. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, both of these writers made me feel excited about fantasy, which I've said before is not my go-to genre. But since I do get exposed to it because I'm raising a kid who enjoys it, I also know how fun it is. And as you're saying, it also can hold all of this seriousness and 
that's one of the things that in all of these genres we're talking about that sort of get the short shrift. It's usually the case that they're exploring both, right? That there's this kind of fun, exciting part, and that there's also serious issues at the hearts of these books. Uh, you know, and the existence of parallel universes and portals that are unique to uh, fantasy, I think, is mind expanding in the very best way. And I was thinking about all the excitement of the James Webb telescope images this summer, and how scientists have literally found a way to time travel now. And so all of a sudden, fantasy doesn't feel quite so fantastical. <laughs> Those James Webb telescope images gave us a great deal of hope, I think, as a brought the world together, I guess. And, you know, I think it's interesting how modern science does give us new dimensions to fantasy and opens up ever more possibilities um, for this, you know, beloved genre. And, you know, I, I always like to quote this. I've read that uh, I read that in a survey, 75% uh, of scientists said they were motivated to study science because they read science fiction growing up, because it kind of expanded their imagination and their curiosity. So I think, I think books like these are really powerful fuel for all of our imaginations. So stay tuned for some of our favorite moments from these episodes with Kwame and Namina. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm thrilled to introduce Kwame Mbalia, our guest today. Kwame is a husband, father, New York Times bestselling author, and former pharmaceutical metrologist in that order. He has written the Tristan Strong trilogy, Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, Tristan Strong Destroys the World, and he just published Tristan Strong Keeps Punching. All three books are about African-American folktales. Kwame is a Howard University graduate and a Midwesterner now in North Carolina, and he survives on dad jokes and Cheez-Its, as do I. Welcome, Kwame. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. It's a treat. And I'm curious about basing a book on folk tales. I've, I've, I've actually never done this, so I'm just going to imagine that it's almost like writing historical fiction in the sense that you're interpreting and reimagining a story in essence. So I was wondering if, if that's the case, um, or how did you approach using folktales as the springboard for your series? I like to think of it more along the lines of like a retelling or even uh, an expansion of a story. I don't, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I don't know if I made up this analogy or if I heard it somewhere. So I'm going to preemptively give some anonymous person credit for this <laughs> analogy. But I like to think of it as an accordion in that, you know, when it's all smushed together, you have this story here. And what I like to do is I like to expand it to give space in between so that I can let some of the personality or uh, some of the characters that maybe only had one or two speaking lines or possibly uh, in the case of a fan favorite gum baby didn't speak at all. Um, I like to expand it and find room where I can really add my own, you know, flavor and, or maybe tell parts of the story that uh, some of us might breeze over. 
That's interesting. Uh, I love it. I think you should claim it if you, until someone tells you <laughs> otherwise. I read an interview you did with Rick Reardon Presents, and that's your publisher, that your parents used to tell you these types of stories all the time. So could you tell us more uh, about the African folklore that you grew up with? Sure. You know, full credit to my parents. They did a fantastic job, really, scouring, you know, not just the country, but the planet, because they frequently traveled to different parts of Africa for their for their job. And they would bring home books and stories. And they wanted to build a library in our house that reflected the characters that looked like me uh, by authors that looked like me. And so I was fortunate enough to read and listen to a bunch of stories. And most a lot of them were folktales, specifically as a uh, one of four siblings in a household and we used to share a room, you know, it could be kind of tough going to sleep at night uh, or getting us to go to sleep at night peacefully, you know, without fighting. <laughs> and so they would put on cassette tapes of uh, Anansi tales and John Henry uh, folk tales. And so I would listen to them, you know, falling asleep and dreaming about them. And so it's kind of been um, almost like a lifelong dream to actually write stories that I remember hearing so that I could bring them forward, you know, for my own kids, uh, so that they could read them or listen to the audio books and dream their own stories about them. So it was like an obligation that my parents kind of passed on to me. And that's, that's really why I love telling these stories now. That's a great story, Kwame. And I'm very interested in this, you know, dreaming about these characters. And, and then uh, also going back to your accordion analogy of expanding them. And so I'm curious, when you're writing a story or a series of stories with mythological characters like that, you must grow. Some must become your friends more than others, put it that way. And so, so I'm curious which of the characters you may be related to the most and why. Um, that's a very, very, very hard question because if you've read Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky, for example, it's a hefty book. It's, you know, almost 500 pages. And I really try to stuff so many different characters in there. And when you do that, especially when you have a large cast, you try and, you know, make them distinct, make them interesting, make them stand out a bit, right? Um, and it is that distinctiveness, that personality that really makes you fall in love with the character. Um, their quirks, uh, you know, Anansi is always after Tristan for his grandmother's uh, plantain recipe or, you know, John Henry in the most recent Tristan Strong Keeps Punching is really fascinated with the idea of blogging. Just these these little quirks are really what endear characters to readers. And I consider myself a reader first and a writer second. But if, you know, I had to choose, you know, um, I would probably... Hmm, I would probably have to say Hi John the Conqueror just because I love characters that maybe you can, uh, I guess the term is maybe anti-heroes, right? Or great, morally uh -huh. great characters, characters that do the right thing for the wrong reason. Um, and when we first meet Hi John in book one, he's doing that. And he grows uh, in, in through book three, you know, not to provide any spoilers, he really grows on me as someone who truly believes that they're right with their moral compass, even if you disagree, like given, you know, if, if on a, on a good day over coffee, he might convince you, 
you know, of, of his way of thinking because he's doing the right thing. You just, you know, his, his motivations are a teensy bit, you know, not in line with yours. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, so Tristan Strong Keeps Punching just came out. This is a trilogy, right? Is that, is that the end of the series? <sighs> yes. I call it, I don't know, I don't know what you call, I don't, I don't know what you call like a three and a half book series because there is a, um, there is a gum baby short story in the Rick Riordan presents anthology, uh, the cursed carnival, um, that kind of falls in between book two and book three. I love that. So it's a trilogy. Trilohaphagy <laughs> is perfect. Uh, newly coined. Uh, well, and just given that sigh, it sounds like it must be hard for it to come to an end. And I just wanted to ask you about that, you know, bringing a series to an end, the ways in which Tristan's story might show up beyond the last word in this latest book. It is, you know, I don't know if I've truly processed it because the way the writing cycle for me has always worked with the Tristan Strong series, which is my first series, so it's really the formative way of of how I've been writing these books, is, you know, the book comes out, you know, I go on tour or I do a bunch of school visits, which, you know, I'm kind of doing now virtually, and then I don't, I wouldn't start writing the next book until January of the next year, just to kind of give yourself that rest and space to recover and breathe. And so I don't know if it's really hit me. I think January is going to come around. I'm going to be like, I don't have a new Tristan book to write. But with with that being said, I, I'm being slowly weaned off of the idea of, of you know, uh, this series being done because there is a, a Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky graphic novel that comes out next August. So it's almost like a full circle return to the beginning in a new format, a new way to experience the story. And so it's like, I'm just barely clinging on to this trilogy. I'm like, not fully letting go just yet. There's still a a new way to experience the story. So it's like, I've not, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, listen, they'll, they'll, they'll have to give me another book to do after this one, because, (laughs) uh, they're still, you know, they're still putting out properties in the, in the, in the universe. So you, you never say never, you just hold on to hope. Well, Kwame, I wanted to talk a little bit about creative process uh, because I know you've hosted writing sprints on Twitter during NaNoWriMo in the past. And I see this year you posted what to me was, I guess, a funny pic of a um, picture of Packers quarterback uh, Aaron Rodgers lying on the ground with a with a startled uh, look on his face after getting sacked, I think, perhaps to describe your feelings on day one of NaNoWriMo this year. So I was wondering if you could tell us, one, have you written a novel during NaNoWriMo? And if you have... What was your experience like? And I hope it wasn't being sacked like Aaron Rodgers. That's probably writing in general for me. It's that <laughs> day startled expression of, uh, you know, one day you've written in these words and you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, wait, I have to do it again and again and again. Um, for me, I've written um, in NaNoWriMo at least uh, f- four years in a row, oh. I want to say. And technically, I've never completed it just because I always forget to, like, log my words because I'm super, <laughs> like, my brain is 20 goldfish um, swimming in a circle um, and it latches on to whatever new shiny thing it sees. So I'm always forgetting, like, to update. Uh, this year, 
I'm actually running a Slack group where uh, it started before NaNoWriMo, but it was more like, you know, that two-week prep lead time, getting in the habit of writing daily. And now that NaNoWriMo has started, we've been updating each other, encouraging each other, um, doing sprints. But for me, my process, it is leashed chaos simply because I have children and children apparently demand attention uh, in meals frequently throughout the day. (laughs) And so I write when I can, um, which is why if you follow me on Twitter, I haven't done it as much recently because I've been too busy posting threatening Muppet pictures, asking people if they've written that day. Um, (laughs) But I used to do the... Um, stop and give me 50, you know, so stop whatever you're doing and write 50 words. And, you know, if you stop at 50, that's great. But if you keep going, that's even better. That's my process is I try and get 50 to 200 words, you know, at some point when I can throughout the day, Um, starting in the morning, you know, before lunch, after lunch, in the afternoon, in the evening. And then when the kids are finally in bed at 830, I you know, sit and look at what I've done. And I've have, you know, anywhere between 700 and a thousand words. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've written that much throughout the day just by doing it in little spurts here and there, not totally stressing myself out. Just get what you can when you can and don't stress about when you have to stop. Obviously that's not something, I don't know if that's something I could do when I was on deadline, but now that I'm not on deadline and I'm just writing with friends Doing that, that has saved me so much like mental stress, knowing that if I can just do a little bit throughout the day, when I finally have an hour or two to carve out for myself to really sit down and write, I've already got a head start. And the end is that just, you know, that much closer. Yeah, Kwame, I'm so glad you mentioned that because stop and give me 50. That's brilliant. I want to, can we use that in NaNoWriMo, by the way, and the accordion? Absolutely. <laughs> this is, this is. Can we steal um, everything? Thanks. My permission to go forth. There are way too many writers out there, brilliant writers who are paralyzed in front of the keyboard um, by the blank page because the daunting task of doing however much typing, writing, whatever their word count goal is for the day. It's, you know, nearly insurmountable to them to face that task but 50 words that's that's two to three sentences that's a couple lines of dialogue that's a description of a of a foggy day you can do that well in closing kwame i read that the novel you're the biggest evangelist for is legend born by tracy dion and since tracy wrote a nanorama pep talk for us this year i'd love to know why you think everyone should read legend born and if or how it's influenced your writing um Legendborn is a brilliant book. Let me put that out there. Contemporary fantasy interweaving um, Arthurian legend uh, with, you know, uh, contemporary Chapel Hill life. uh, Just absolutely brilliant. And as a North Carolinian, you know, I'm that much more, you know, um, fascinated with it because of how um, Tracy weaves our, you know, neighborhoods into uh, her story. So the book is brilliant, but, but the book doesn't inspire me. Tracy inspires me because uh, not a lot of people know, but, you know, Tracy and I would um, meet at Starbucks and I would work on Tristan and she would work on Legendborn. Uh, And we would talk about what we were frustrated with or what we were trying to do Um, in seeing how I got to read some of the early drafts, you know, and so seeing how Tracy worked and worked and revised 
and transformed what was already a great book into something, a brilliant piece of literature, um, that is really the inspiring part for me. And that's what I think about whenever I sit down and I'm like, oh, this draft is garbage. And then I'm like, you know what? That's fine. That's fine. Because we can revise, we can work on it, we can edit it, we can shape it into the vision that we originally imagined, even if right now it's just a lump of ugly clay. I'm thrilled to talk with our guest today, Namana Forna. Namana is a young adult novelist based in Los Angeles and the author of the New York Times bestselling epic fantasy YA novel, The Gilded Ones, which is the first book in a trilogy called the Deathless Book Series. And it has been included on all sorts of most anticipated and best of lists this past year. Originally from Sierra Leone, Namana moved to the U.S. when she was nine and has been traveling back and forth ever since. And Namina is not only a novelist, she also works as a screenwriter in L.A. Welcome, Namina. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to start by hearing about the genesis of The Gilded Ones. I, I read that you decided to be a writer while you were at Spelman College and that you conceived of The Gilded Ones at Spelman, or at least an early version of it. So I'm curious about that time at Spelman and, and if it held a creative magic for you and how that might have been intrinsic to your journey as an author. Um, I think that the Spelman definitely sort of was a time where I was formulating new ideas. And it was also a time where I was asking a lot of questions because then I was, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s. And it was sort of that time where you start asking big questions of yourself. And so at Spelman, I started having this recurring dream of this girl in golden armor. And she's like walking slow motion onto a battlefield. And like she has like two swords, one in each hand, and she jumps up into the battlefield and the dream always cuts out. And I never knew where it went, but I knew that this girl was special. Um, And at the time I was taking women's studies classes. So I was finally getting some answers to some questions that I'd had basically all my life. Uh, Because I grew up in Sierra Leone and that was an extremely patriarchal society. And I grew up at the start of the civil war and just like the sort of ordeals that women went through. I would always ask myself, why, you know, like, why would people do these things? And like, why was it that sometimes when people did awful things, they would couch it in ways where it seemed like it was for your own benefit, particularly if you were a woman. Um, And then when I moved to um, America, I moved to Georgia, it seemed to be sort of a continuation of that. But like, in a more polite way, it was like the same old uh, sort of aggression against women, but it was, again, always couched in this sort of flowery religious language. And I'd always had questions about that. And then I took women's studies classes and I was like, ah, it's a system. You know, uh, it is a system called patriarchy. I have a word for it. And I spent so much time, like, you know, wondering about violence against women and all of these questions that, I wanted to make it simpler for the next girl um, or the next person, rather, who came along 
and had questions for why things were the way that they were. So I wanted to write a book that explained what it meant to live in a patriarchal society in very sort of clear terms, but fantastical terms. So that's sort of where the Gilded Ones came from, was me having this desire to write a book that explained that. And so I had this dream and I had this desire, um, but I actually wrote like the first draft of the Gilded Ones when I was doing my MFA um, at USC, University of Southern California. But it had been sort of boiling inside me like for years before I actually wrote the book. That's a really powerful story and very inspiring. I love the idea of this too for young readers. Um, I know the path wasn't linear for you um, and that you faced some years of rejection with sort of the concept there of like, quote unquote, black girls stories not being marketable in the publishing industry, which largely I think is starting to change, which is a good thing. But could you tell us about how you dealt with rejection and how you kept believing in yourself as a writer during that time? So it was a couple of ways, but really the primary thing was this. I always knew that my purpose was writing, or rather I knew it like when I think I was around 17, 18, when I was like, oh, this is, this is what it is. This is what I meant to do. And the reason why I knew that was because when I was growing up in Sierra Leone, um, again, it was a war. It was not a fun time. Uh, and I desperately needed an escape. And so what I would do is I would read and I would read fantasy voraciously. Like you could not pull a book out of my hand because that was just my way of dealing with things that I had no understanding of. I had no control over. It was a deeply traumatic time. And so when I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, and I realized that I could write, I was like, ah, this is what I want to do. I want to provide a safe space for other kids or just people in sort of adverse circumstances, the way that my favorite authors did for me when I was a child. And so that was the one thing that kept me going no matter what, because I was like, okay, I know this is my purpose. I know I have these stories. And even like when I wasn't the best writer, I was like, okay, you have to get better so you can deserve the stories that are already in your head so that you can write, like give justice to them. Um, so that was like the primary way that I sort of dealt with rejection was this understanding that this is your task. This is what you're meant for. So you just keep going and you keep pushing. And I think the other thing was that when I got rejections, I would tell myself, not in a creepy way, by the way, this is a no for right now, but it's not a no forever. And the doors might be closed right now, but they're not going to be closed forever. So you just keep pushing. And that's what I did. That's a great answer and great advice for anyone who's getting rejected. Um, you've just got to keep pushing and keep believing in yourself. And I'm, in, I'm intrigued by a moment within that kind of rejection journey that I read about. And in an interview, you said that when you got an agent, you told uh, her or him, I'm not sure which, but that your book needed um, one more rewrite. Because as you said, you said, I didn't go hard enough. I needed to be bigger, blacker, more feminist than ever. And she was like, I think that's a great idea. Run with it. So you wrote the book in a month and a half. And, and that just seems like an interesting, pivotal, creative moment of empowerment to me. So I'm curious about that realization that the book needed to be bigger, how, you, how that occurred to you and why you needed to go bigger. 
So um, I have to say that uh, my first agent was a magnificent human being because like she, when I first got an agent, like I was completely demoralized. Like I truthfully did not believe that there was any place for me in the industry because I, at that point, been slapped down for 12 years, like with literally people saying to my agents from like massive companies saying to my face that, you know, like your stuff is good, but nobody's going to buy it because like nobody wants to read stuff from black people. Like literally somebody said that to my face once, you know? Uh, So by the time uh, I met my first agent, like I had no belief that I would be accepted in the industry. I thought my stories would be. I knew I had what it took. And I knew that I wrote stories that would appeal to people. But I did not think that I as a person, because of my Blackness, would appeal to an audience because that was what I had been told for the better part of 12 years. So when I first got my agent, one of the things that I wanted to do was like change my name and hide behind a pseudonym because I thought like, you know, they're never going to accept like a black female author. So I might as well, I had a pseudonym, which I won't tell of a very kindly older white gentleman that I was going to use. And my agent was the first person to say, no, times have changed and times are changing. And you have to believe that use your name. You have a beautiful name, use your name. And that was like the first sort of glimmer for me because I was like, wait, what? Like all I'd ever seen was rejection, rejection, rejection based on, you know? So I was like, wait a second. And that was the moment that I started sort of looking around and being like, wait, I think things are getting a little bit better, but I was very distrustful of it. And so we went out with a book before The Gilded Ones, which did not go. But so by the time it was time to rewrite The Gilded Ones, basically how I knew it was time was I was working, writing clickbait, and it was like my job to sort of see what trends were coming. And I saw the reception that Black Panther like was getting, the, um, the promos for it. And I was like, I think it's now or never. Like mm-hmm. now is the time to sell the Gilded Ones. But by that time, I recognized times had changed. And the Gilded Ones that I wrote uh, in 2012 when I was in film school was not like a, the book that I would have r- written if I was in my full sort of power because that was a book that I was writing still sort of having to hide who I was. So when it time when the time rolled around, I was like, wait a minute. I need to take a step back and like write this book the way I would have written it had I not been afraid that people would reject me based on who I was. And so that's what I did. Well, Namina, you know, we've obviously been talking about some very harsh, realistic aspects of the world, I guess. But you wrote a fantasy novel. (laughs) Why fantasy? How does fantasy open up a window into what you want to say in a way that uh, realism might not? Because fantasy is a safe space. Fantasy allows you to re- the remove to examine things that you might not have the wherewithal to examine um, if it was realistic. Like, I deeply despise real things. Like, I will not watch war movies. I, I don't enjoy things that are based in reality for that 
for the simple fact that fantasy always transports you. It like puts you in a different world. You are allowed to feel the awe, the magic, but also you're allowed to confront very real things. But again, there's that remove that gives you that safe space to think about things that you would not want to think about because it's too real. And that's why for me, fantasy. But also, honestly, I love magic. I love mermaids. I love dragons. If there's magic in it, take my money. Just take my money and run. <laughs> like I'm gullible when it comes to that sort of thing. So that's why fantasy. It's always going to be fantasy for me. Well, that's that's fun. And um, we wanted to give our listeners some good advice to write their novels in November. Could you tell us what some of your favorite writing advice might be? Sure thing. Preparation is key. I know that there are authors who write freestyle and it just sort of comes and it it flows through your fingertips. And I used to be like that. Um, and I think every uh, writer is when they're starting out. It's just sort of intuitive. But when you have a crunch, um, like especially if you want to write your novel in a month, do an outline, work out all your story beats and everything in an outline, because it makes it that much easier for you to go to pages and to write your pages. And if you change anything, you can just change the outline and work it out in the outline and continue. So if you want to write really fast and cleanly, and you want to write uh, something that sort of stands up, Use. I highly recommend using an outline. Of course, not everybody does that. And, and it's not necessary with every story. And also, you can have different outlines. For instance, I had a middle grade novel that I wrote where basically my outline was just uh, chapter headings in which blah, blah, blah does this, in which blah, blah, blah. And that was my outline versus like my outlines for like the Gilded Ones, which were like eight pages and very intensive but just have some sort of planning and preparation in place. The other thing that I would say is that you're only as good as your community. A lot of times people think that writing is a solitary pursuit. It's really not because you need your critique partners and you need different critique partners at different junctures. Like for instance, when you have a story or you have an idea, you need a warm, welcoming and safe, safe environment to bounce that off of. Because one of the worst things that could ever happen is you have this idea and you're so excited about it and somebody's like, I don't get it. Like that just displays you. So find somebody who is really good at bouncing things back and forth. Um, and then of course, find somebody who's great at grammar and find somebody who's great at the larger story and find somebody who can really go in on each chapter have different critique partners for different parts of your work, um, which I, I have at least five or six different critique partners, you know, and I don't use them all at once or, at, or like on every project, but it's still having that community really is key. And it just also makes it a better writing process when you can call somebody up and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, as we're in week two of our own month of summer episodes, we're highlighting the fact that Book Talk is partnering with Barnes & Noble to drive BNN customers to a dedicated 
Book Talk Hub, aimed at driving discoverability at participating Barnes and Noble stores and online at bn.com. And TikTok is calling this the Book Talk Challenge. And it's basically giving Barnes and Noble customers QR codes that will take them to this hub. Uh, And then it's really about engagement. I mean, as far as I can see, it's a lot about TikTok and influencers and a little bit about maybe Barnes and Noble hoping to sell books. Yeah, I think that, that <laughs> that's my take too. Um, but I do think it's it's such a good move on Barnes and Noble's part. And I'm so happy to see the direction that Barnes and Noble is in generally going with their new CEO. They, In fact, if you go into at least the Barnes and Nobles I've gone into, they now have a book talk challenge. This was even months ago before they did this or a book talk table rather where they feature book talk recommendations. And I read that they're, they're hoping to get even more traction from the larger book talk community and that they're hoping to engage people across a, a range of literary genres. So definitely good for Barnes and Noble's brand image and their overall, you know, you know, move to kind of stay America's bookstore, I guess, for last, lack of better words, um, since they're known as, uh, you know, they're known as more traditional brick and mortar place to shop as opposed to Amazon, which has a lot of flexibility comparatively with its giant, you know, virtual footprint. Yeah, totally agreed. And we'd love to hear from anybody who's participating in this. Uh, I think it can only be good for BNN's image, as you said, uh, but I... I'm definitely curious about how it will translate into sales. Mm -hmm. We'll have to follow up this fall and see if there are any results or stories about this, because I just don't know if a campaign like this can really change buying habits uh, or whether having a QR code would send me to the book talk hub in the first place. That said, the challenge itself does look pretty fun and cool. And if you have a TikTok account, you can just check it out by going to TikTok and looking up hashtag book talk challenge. Yeah, we've spoken so much in these trends about the trends of videos and this this whole thing we recently shared about Instagram, you know, prioritizing its reels, which has really changed the whole experience of Instagram. So so this looks like more of the same, but it's but it's in the name of selling books and discoverability and it's definitely bringing in young readers. So I'm all in on that. Yeah, me too. Only I'm not in because I don't do TikTok. Hey, I'm 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 on. I've got an account. I'm gonna I'm gonna film my first TikTok video this weekend. <laughs> yes. I asked my my son to plan it. So Brooke, you're next. After my son plans this one, we'll coordinate with James. For oh you. my gosh! Hashtag uh, book talk challenge. <laughs> yeah, parents get in. Parents are here. <laughs> so anyway, we're just tiptoeing into TikTok, but wishing TikTok and Barnes and Noble and all the content creators a happy summer book talk challenge. Thanks for listening to Right Minded each week as we're on our summer break. We hope you're all having a relaxing August and we will see you next week.